Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the topic of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and I'm excited about this episode. We actually have an excerpt from Forefront Festival Virtual, which we did earlier this year. And uh, one of the speakers in one of the breakouts at the virtual event was Dr. Benjamin Myers. And uh, Dr. Benjamin Myers is a former poet laureate of the state of Oklahoma, and he's a professor of literature at Oklahoma Baptist University. And he's been featured at a Forefront event in the past. We were excited to have him back for Forefront Festival Virtual. And uh, Dr. Myers just ran a, a really great breakout about what he calls incarnational diction. And we thought that uh, this is a breakout that was, that was such that we could play it back for you and you could learn from it. And then we could have a little conversation about it as a team. So without further ado, here is Dr. Benjamin Myers' breakout on incarnational diction. And then myself and the Forefront team will be back to discuss it. talk a little bit about diction and poetry in particular but i think i think it applies uh to to other art as well um you all i think you mostly look younger than me so maybe this this opening reference is not going to land right but but i remember learning a lot probably everything i know about language really from, from Sesame Street and, and the Electric Company when, when I was a, a child. Um, you know, countless hours left alone in front of PBS, um, <laughs> which there, I, I, there probably were educations available, actually. And uh, so one of my favorite sketches on the Electric Company was this thing that, that is apparently called uh, Silhouette Blend. You, you might remember, it's like, so these these two silhouettes, these two darkened faces would, would sort of come out on the screen and one would say um, the first syllable of a word and the other one would say the second syllable of the word and then they'd come together and they'd say the word. So one face would say must and the other face would say turd, mustard, and then they'd say mustard. And, and I loved this and you know, at the time I'm not sure if I really understood why, but looking back, I think what I really loved about that that electric company skit was the way it treated words like like they were things. It, it didn't treat language like uh, an abstract tool used for some other purpose. It treated language like its own. Um, I, I don't know if the electric company would use this terminology, but treated it like its own created thing. Um, that has value as a creative thing. And so that really appealed to me. And then later in college, I discovered uh, you know, the French poet, uh, Rimbaud, who writes about vowels. Uh, he says, uh, A black, E white, I red, U green, O blue, vowels. Uh, he goes on, he equates the letter U with what, what he says are waves, divine shudderings of viridian seas, the peace of pastures dotted with animals, the peace of the furrows. And, and, and I, I guess the, the technical term for that would be something like synesthesia, 
right? Which from a, a neurologist standpoint is probably some kind of um, crossing uh, um, synapse gaps in the brain that aren't supposed to be crossed, right? But um, from the artistic standpoint, I, th I think that kind of crossing those gaps and, and even crossing the, the seemingly uncrossable gap between word and thing uh, can get written art to closer to a faithful depiction of, of the world and an honoring of creation, not just in nature or even not just in culture, but in language as well. And so what I'm saying is we know concrete images help poems be successful aesthetically, right? But I think concrete diction does the same thing. And when I say concrete diction, I mean, of course, um, foremost, using words that refer to actual things, uh, generally avoiding abstractions, right? Ezra Pound famously said, go in fear of abstractions. And, you know, that's largely true in a short poem. Now, if you're writing, you know, Paradise Lost or The Four Quartets, you have a little more room for abstraction there, right? But, but in, in short lyric, generally we want to avoid abstractions. Um, so words maybe aren't tangible things, but poets try to treat them as if they were. And I think this is part of, of loving language, right? So we probably, if someone asks us what a poet is, we might say someone who loves language, right? But in my experience, there are kind of two sorts of lovers of language, right? There are the people who profess to love language because they want to show off their vocabulary, right? Um, and so they will gush about um, the biggest word they know. And then there are people who love the real words they use every day, right? And, and I think it's that second person who's closer to a state of poetry. Um, and of course, there's, we, we could spend a long time talking about kind of long debate in poetry between quote unquote poetic diction and what you know, Wordsworth calls the language of, of, uh, of the everyday man. Um, but in short, Wordsworth wins that debate, I think, um, that the best poetic language um, is, is the, um, the common language. And not necessarily because that is easier or more accessible, though it might be more hospitable, which I think is a more Christian way to think about, about that in terms of art. Um, but rather because I just think it's more aesthetically ratifying, right? And, and, and largely that's because we are incarnated beings, right? So we want to write about love, for instance, this abstract thing. But we've never been in love outside of our bodies. If you've been in love, you've been in love while hungry. You've been in love while standing underneath a large oak tree that is dripping stuff on you. You've, you know, we've never experienced abstraction. And, and, and there's a reason for that. We're created beings. Um, and, and of course, um, 
then our experience of our, our, our emotions and our, even our ideas, uh, if we really think about it, are, are embodied, right? So, you know, another example of this is when I think back on my, my wedding, right? I don't think about a, a legal change in status that day. Um, you know, I think, I think about uh, my wife walking down the aisle in her dress. I think about the gazebo the thing we were in and the birds singing and, and all of this physical stuff, right? Um, and so the language we want to use is the language that gets us closest to the physical world, that comes closest to bridging that gap between word and thing, right? Um, so in poetry written in English, a good basic rule is to go whenever possible with uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon word, as George Orwell put it, right? And that's not because of some lingering uh, resentment over the Norman Conquest in 1066, right? Um, and, it, and it's not because Latin is a lousy language. I love Latin. I love Latin poetry. Um, it really works and connects uh, uh, in its language. But Latin doesn't work as well in English. Uh, in English, English works better. Uh, and, and often that, that simple English word. So, I mean, just quick sort of history you probably know. In English, we have many, often many words, but at least two words for most things. Because one is the, the pre-Norman conquest English word, uh, cow. Uh, for instance, and, and the other is the post-1066 uh, uh, Anglo, Anglo-Norman or Normanized Anglo version, so beef, right? Um, and then we usually, we have a nice sprinkling of Latin on top, uh, largely thanks to the medieval church and to modern science. Um, and so usually, not always in poetry, there are reasons to choose, you know, this isn't like King James only kind of rule, right? Like only use the Anglo-Saxon. But um, most times that simple word works better. And largely that's because that word to, the, to an English speaker, right? it would be different if you're a French speaker, but to an English speaker, that word is actually already closer to uh, um, the concrete world, right? So an example of that. When you go to a forest, right, what do you see there? You see wood, right? Forest is a French word. What's the Anglo-Saxon or English word for that? The woods, right? Uh, um, the woods. And, and so that, that um, Germanic origin word, woods, already has... Uh, the physical world, as we conceptualize it in English, kind of cooked into it, right? Um, same thing you might say, you know, there's, there's, there's a big difference between um, getting, getting dirty and getting soiled, right? Um, when you're dirty, you know what you have on you. It's dirt. Um, uh, and, and so these, these English words, and or I should say maybe sullied would be even further, these English words um, give a kind of concrete reality on the diction level, right? And so I always tell my students that a poem, 
or really anything you write, but especially a poem, right, is, is um, like a house. And every line of the poem is a hallway you want the reader to walk down. And you want to make sure that hallway is lined through with windows through which they can look out and see the world. But what you don't want to put in that hallway is a door that they're just going to walk right out of the poem through, right? And, and most of the time, that abstract word, because of the way our minds work and because of the way we're wired as embodied beings, is a doorway they're, 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 going, they're going to walk through, right? And so the goal is to get to that most fundamental uh, level, right? And, and that, that will give us a more incarnational, or really, if I'm going to be true to my own principles here, I should say a more enfleshed uh, uh, kind of diction, right? Um, so here's an example, right? So I'm going to read you a poem, a very, a very bad poem. It is all contingent upon a traditional farm conveyance painted in a crimson color wet with the recent precipitation and in direct proximity to the pallid barnyard fowl. Um, right now, now, if you've hung around modern poetry very much, you might recognize that as a horribly mangled version of William Carlos Williams' The Red Wheelbarrow, right? Uh, which is a poem that, that continually baffles my students and it, it baffles them by their attraction to it, right? They keep saying, why do I like this poem so much? It's just about some chickens and some rainwater, right? And I'll say, because it's about some chickens and some rainwater, right? And, and, and what the poem does very fundamentally is present to us, um, well, really what, what Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins, might call the thisness of the things in the poem, right? Uh, um, their created nature. And it does that larger than a level of diction, right? Uh, the, you know, words like glazed with its nice, when you say that word, you can almost feel the glazy texture of that water, right? Like a, a nice matte cover on a good book. Um, or, or, or the word chicken, right? There could not be a more chickeny word than chicken. There's no way a chicken could be named. I mean, you almost have to move your head like a chicken when you say chicken, right? And, and so these are, are powerful choices in a poem. Barnyard fowl doesn't do really anything poetically, even though it does the same thing semantically. Right? Uh, it doesn't do anything poetically. Barrow is another great word. It's such an old word. Right? A lot of history on that word. Um, so again, right, the point isn't uh, to set up some kind of only use words from before 1066 rule. In fact, um, you know, uh, depending on the, the sort of your home environment, your heritage, it may be an entirely different set of words. Right? Uh, I know, I know uh, a Cherokee poet who uses um, wonderful uh, you know, words in his poem that uh, 
I never have to look up because I also know what they mean in the poem, right? And those are the words of, 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 of his heritage. Um, you know, I, when, when one of my books came out, uh, I had a, a friend who's a, a writer in New York write to me and say, you know, I love the book. Can you explain to me, though, what, um, was, what is a dually and what is brush hogging? Right. And so I had to you know, sort of, which you guys may not know either, but, you know, uh, if you live in rural Oklahoma, those are those are common words. Dooley's truck with big extra wheels on the back. Um, brush hogging is what you do when you haven't mowed in two, two years and then you need to mow. Um, it's a good word. Brush hogging. Right. Um, and so incarnational diction helps you get closer to the world. Right by treating the created world, God's world, by treating the word like a thing, and it does this on that level of of diction in relationship to language. It also does it on the level of diction related to sound, and, and I think this is almost more important. Right, um, good words sound. This is going to sound terribly vague, but they sound like themselves. Right. And and kids know this instinctively. Uh, when, when my son was a little younger, one day he almost drove us crazy. It's sort of walking around the house all day long saying peanut butter, peanut butter. And finally, you know, my wife says, Isaac, why are you saying peanut butter over and over? And it sounds so buttery peanut butter right and so we notice the way sound connects to think right and 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 children always know this they love to to put words in their mouth they love to put everything in their mouth right but uh words and and, and try and, and it's a way mark dotty uh, a poet i really like says this is a way we put the world in our mouth through words right uh, the way we kind of follow that impulse and so, um, you know, children's books know this. So, so think about, um, I don't know if you know this book, but we used to read this book to my kids called Goodnight Moon. Does anyone, anyone know Goodnight Moon? It has this wonderful refrain, right? Goodnight comb, goodnight brush, goodnight nobody, goodnight mush, and goodnight to the old lady whispering hush, right? And, and that, well, almost nothing would convince my kids to go to bed, but, but that came as close as anything could, right? And so what's doing it there? Well, well it's the combination of those shh sounds, right, which are universal for sort of shh, be quiet, right? But it's also those deep O and U sounds, right, which are, are like a glass of warm milk or chamomile tea or, or, or whatever it may be, right? I mean, imagine, so, so I thought, okay, w would this work with different sounds, right? So, you know, here's my sort of um, um, hypothetical Australian version of Good Night Moon, right? Good Night Stick, Good Night Snake, Good Night Brick, Good Night Mate, and Good Night to Mick Grilling Steak, right? There's, there's no sleepiness in that whatsoever. And it has totally to do with those high, I sounds. And so this is where the point about incarnational or enfleshed diction comes down to the practical level of vowel choice, right? Um, 
And of course, it can't be a matter of, of using only a high vowel or a low vowel um, in the whole line. Um, that's going to be impossible using the English language largely. But it's a matter of what kind of vowel dominates the line. Right? And so you can write a line to reflect the thing you're writing about and nudge word closer to thing often through your choice of a vowel from the kind of scale of vowels, right? So if you think about it, there's a vowel scale that sort of goes from O, U, E, I, L, B, right up at the top. Um, and we all know instinctively that low vowels mean slow or sleepy or big, and higher vowels mean fast or tiny, right? I mean, you know, if I have a friend named Bubba, and I have a friend named Pee Wee, you know what both of those guys are like, right? Unless it's ironic nicknames, which happens. But um, probably Bubba's a big guy and Pee Wee's a small guy, right? And, and, and that's um, an interesting thing you can use in language to push your poem closer to the world. Right, so I think about uh, Shakespeare in his in his thirtieth sonnet when he says, you know, how he is want to heavily from woe to woe tell o'er the sad account of four bemoaned moan. Right, um, in, in all those O sounds there, there's there's almost a physical presence of weeping, right? A kind of heavy groaning. You can. Uh, this is probably the weirdest thing I've ever said as a professor, but you can almost hear Shakespeare's guts, right? Sort of heaving in that, in that sentence. Um, and of course, you know, close attention to vowels also uh, um, can be accompanied by close attention to consonants to do the same thing. Uh, a good example I always like to give of this is Robert Frost's poem, The Ovenbird. Um, he's describing this bird, and he says, "Loud, a midsummer, and a midwood bird." And you have all those D's: a midsummer and a midwood bird. And he's talking about th this bird is a kind of uh, woodpecker type bird, right? And, he, and he's describing in the poem it's it's knocking on the on the tree trunk, and you, in all those D sounds, you just hear that 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 knocking on the trunk in the poem. And so he's taken the language of the poem and he's pushed it a little closer to, to, to the thing itself, right? Another woodpecker example is Maurice Manning in his poem, uh, in a poem about a, um, talking to God. He says, did you teach the woodpecker how to knock its head against the wood? Right? To knock its head against the wood. Those are all kind of hard vowel sounds there, right? And that attention to the vowel sound helps him get closer to the thing. Or, or my all-time favorite example, a poem you probably know, Yeats's Lake Isle of Innisfree. And he's describing the, the, the lake water, and he says, lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. La, la, la. And he's taken this, this line of, of words, which are not things, and he's made it sound like water, right? 
Um, now, I mean, I know Yeats is a high bar, right? Uh, um, and, and not every poem we write is going to be the Lake Isle of Innisfree. But, but every poem we write can be stronger when we think on the level of A, you know, am I avoiding the kind of diction and abstraction that makes doors in my line for the, for the reader to walk out of? And B, what are the dominant vowels and consonants in the line? Um, which vowels, which consonants dominate? And, and are they the right ones? And if not, is there a way to change it? Right? Um, and of course, it always comes back to revision. All right. Well, I thought that was uh, a really neat segment to to listen to and learn from. And uh, so I, I'm excited to have this conversation with the Forefront team. I am here with Forefront Chairman Rich Chrisman. Rich, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this. Also joining us from across the pond at uh, Cambridge, in fact, is uh, Sean O'Hare. Hello. Hello. Good to be with you guys virtually here. Yeah. I, I think we I think we always need to remind our listeners that Sean goes to Cambridge just because, first and foremost, we're proud of him. But secondly, it just kind of makes us look cooler. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I have a friend that goes to Cambridge. Like that brings me value. Yeah. So it's, this is really all about us. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, those kind of friends. I got you. Yeah, Forefront's an international organization, of course. And uh, the other gentleman you just heard speaking is Forefront Podcast Director Cody Schweikert. Yeah, boys, good to be with you. I am feeling great. Um, I do not have COVID. I was tested last week. I sound like uh, I'm on my deathbed, but I actually feel great on the inside, Um, Mm. you know, outwardly wasting away, but happy to be here with you tonight. All right, so I'm I'm excited to dive in here to uh, to what Dr. Myers talked about in his in his breakout. So we have this idea of incarnational diction, and, and Dr. Myers gave us a lot of uh, examples of that and how we can do it better. I'm interested uh, to hear from Sean here. Sean, any particular takeaways that you had from the breakout? Anything that stuck out to you? Yeah, I there's a lot there. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I thought was an interesting guideline or sort of like a good metric or something to to kind of help you as you're as you're thinking about crafting poetry um, was the idea of of when you have the chance to go with the sort of the Anglo-Saxon kinds of words just because of like the, the mixture of words that you've got in our language. And I also liked how he kind of developed that a little further and he was talking about other um resources that you have at your disposal it's not just like hey you have to use the anglo-saxon word there's also some some flexibility to that so i thought that was an interesting thing and a really valuable way of thinking about this and like moving forward if i'm ever like trying to think of you know even in other forms of writing and creativity um but particularly like poetry or like essays or something like that you know kind of having or even like if you're, if you're writing like song lyrics those kinds of things just thinking about what some of the ways that you can use like pools that you can draw from particular particular um kinds of words that help you get closer to the world that was kind of cool 
Yeah, I love that it was totally addressed to writers. You know, he was talking to people that were interested in writing writing poetry, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it felt felt like we were getting a little master class for uh, you know, for free. So Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, you know, Dr. Potter, if you're listening, I apologize for these next few words, but uh, I feel like, you know, with the exception of a few uh, great poetic works, you know, being read, I think uh, my entire intro to poetry class from college was summarized in that short clip by Dr. Myers there. So we really did get a poetry 101. uh, Mm. And that was great. The amount that he communicated about poetry in a relatively short time really, you know, impressed me. Yeah. So Rich, what's, uh, what's something that stuck out to you? Uh, what stuck out for me the most is, uh, as someone who dabbles in poetry at, at times, um, the Richard, weren't you, weren't you recently, uh, published? Uh, didn't yeah. you just publish Are a few a poems? published author? Uh, yeah, I have published a few poems in the past. Nothing, nothing too fancy. But did, did uh, something just happen though? Is that yeah, not well, public yet or breaking news? Yeah, here? I don't know. At the time of this episode coming out, I don't know if this will have been released yet, but uh two of my poems were just picked up by Ecstasis magazine, which Sean O'Hare uh has also been published by. So um they are certainly friends of Forefront. Hopefully you guys are listening to our podcast. Yeah, you, you dabble. You, you dabble, Richard. Yeah. But um anyway, what I uh what really stuck out to me was uh I started to get a little self-conscious as he was going on about, you know, Yates and whatnot, because I think that the, so often I write a poem that is one or the other. It either sounds a certain way and I like the way it sounds. And I'm really kind of writing music with the only instrument that I know how, which is Mm. words. Um, and it's, you know, the sound, or I'm writing a poem because I have a specific meaning that I want to convey. And if the sound kind of falls into place, that's nice, but it doesn't always do that. And I think that, um, you know, and Dr. Myers was kind of moving around a little bit here, but I think what I kind of took from this is the reminder that, you know, a really good poem does both of those things and does all of those things. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think the best, the best contemporary poem that you can read is going to be one that uses common language that we are tied to and really means something to us, but also is tremendously assonant at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, and sounds musical. Um, I'd love to get into this more later, but another, you know, quick thought that I had that I noted while we were listening is the fact too, that um, I think one of the reasons why people, I mean, poetry is, is, has certainly dropped in popularity as an art form over the past half century. And, you know, a lot of people that like poetry think about that all the time and, you know, wonder why that may be. And there's a ton of reasons. But one thing is the fact that I I think that we are often like when you say the word poetry, I think so many people in, you know, the English speaking world think of the grandiose language of poets from another time. And they think like, oh, that's what poetry sounds like. But I think one thing that Dr. Myers said that was so encouraging is that's what poetry sounds like in their language. You know, like the the words at, you know, that were being written in 10, what was the year he kept using? 1066. 1066. The words in 1067, uh, you know, were different than, you know, the words 100 years prior to that and are different than the words now. 
And I think that we need to stop as uh, readers and writers of poetry, we need to stop uh, holding ourselves to a completely incompatible bar of being like, oh, my poetry needs to sound like, you know, even Robert Frost is now, you know, decades and decades old and our language has changed. So he's canceled. We canceled Frost. Canceled. Rich, if I can go off of one of the things you were saying uh, earlier about the difficulty of combining the right words and the meaning and like, and having those things work together. Um, I mean, to, to, to make the prospects even like more daunting for getting it right. In a sense, you have a lot of times, depending on what like form of poetry you're writing, you're, you're writing with rhyme and meter as well. So there's like all these factors that you have to consider when you're, um, when you're crafting a line or, or lines of poetry. And um, I think it just does go to show how important it is to read a lot of poetry, to read a lot of other writing, to be somebody who is immersed in a lot of words. Because the more you do that, the more options you have available to you to match the meter and the rhyme and the, the sounds of the words and the meaning of the words. Um, and I think the more that you read good poetry particularly the modern forms of poetry, like you're talking about, the better able to kind of pull that off, if that makes sense. Just like reading a lot of essays or books or whatever makes you a better writer when you're like doing essays for school, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he mentioned too, at the end, like the, the idea of the concept of revision that, that you're going to kind of write a line at first that kind of gets across what you think it should get across, but then you, you read it and you listen to it and you hear how the words sound and you realize that it's like, it's not really getting across what you want in terms of the sound of the words. Um, and, and maybe the vowel choice and, and, and the diction, things like that. So that the process of revision helps you like maybe maintain the meter and the meaning, but also be able to revise it to the point where you're, you're choosing the words that are going to get across what you want in the sound as well. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. And instead of just feeling like once you got the meaning across, you nailed it. It's like, you, there's like another step. There's a, there's a process to get there. And the differences, the differences in languages are so interesting as well, because like we're, you know, talking about poetry in, in contemporary English, but I think anybody that's studied poetry at, or read poetry at any, you know, significant length gets super jealous of the Italians, you know, or the, or the Spanish, because they have so many more options for words that sound similar or end similarly or begin similarly, mm -hmm. uh, that there's so much more to play with than in English, which is frustrating, but and also, you know, certain um, like poetry, you know, I wish I could read in uh, more pictorial languages like Chinese or Japanese, where like not only do you have the sound and the word choice, but how those words like look on the page mm -hmm. also matters. Just so interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was just going to say to Rich's point really quickly that it reminded me of this thing I had never thought of. I I've always kind of been low key ashamed that I like certain poets and not others. For example, um, love Robert Frost, love Langston Hughes, love Ben Myers. Um, and people that I just have not enjoyed as much are a guy like T.S. Eliot, right? Who yep. are writing such um, obscure stuff. And he was a genius and he wanted his stuff to be studied. And it was like all these Easter eggs and these hidden things. And it was like a riddle to be unlocked and good for him, you know, and bless the God bless the people that love that stuff. 
Um, but I always felt kind of dumb or like intellectually inferior for not really like digging that stuff. And um, now I have a better argument. You know, I could mm-hmm. just say, well, you know, doc, Dr. Benjamin Myers says that, uh, you know, the best poetic language is the common language, not just because it's accessible necessarily, but because it's more aesthetically gratifying. I think there's something to that. I don't think it dismisses, you know, more abstract poetry. I think there's a place for that, but I thought I had never, ever thought of, uh, accessible poetry in that way. Yeah. It's like maybe T.S. Eliot put too many doors in his poems. Yeah. <laughs> and we walked right yeah, out. I, of them. I walked right out. Yeah. First line. I walked right yeah, out. I mean, I'm out. I mean, you got to think too, who, who are you writing for and who is the poet? Who was the poet that you are reading writing for too? And I think that, you know, a lot of the poets that we think of as the, you know, the pantheon of great English poets were very academically elite writing for other academic elites. You know, so their their poems are riddled with references to, you know, Greek mythology that, you know, the average person would not even understand the reference lest they had studied, you know, the classics, you know, like mm-hmm. Sean O'Hare or something. So I think that, uh, but, you know, I, I think that, I think there's something, you know, Cody, I like that you said, like, you you felt this sort of, like, guilt or shame, and now you feel like that's kind of lifted. I think that uh, one of the biggest things in engaging with poetry that we need to understand is that, you know, 21st century America, what we are much more comfortable with common language. And I think that so much of what we try to engage with, we disappoint ourselves because we're like, oh, I really want to read this thing. It, You know, they tell me it's fantastic. And then you mm-hmm. get down with it and you read it and you're like, I just don't get it. It just doesn't do it for me. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it's because that poem wasn't written for you. You know, it's just mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I had my, my takeaways uh, after that talk, I'll just hit through a few of them real quick. So I was reminded of a Seinfeld episode. There's a, this whole principle of like words sounding how they mean, you know, I can't remember how he had articulated that, but that whole principle is kind of featured in this one episode of Seinfeld where this one comic is kind of like, you know, stealing from Jerry Seinfeld and he's like, puke, that's a funny word. Can I use that? And he's just like writes this whole routine about how, how funny the word puke is. And uh, sometimes you picking, finding the right perfect word um, has to do with just how that word sounds as much as what it means. So I thought about you know, I'm sure I'm sure Dr. Myers would have referenced Seinfeld if he had a few more minutes. Um, yeah, he he's classic says finishes his whole talk with always comes back to revision, which is just a total cliche. Dr. Myers being a total, you know, professor there, you know, revise your <laughs> revise your poems. So that was hilarious. I thought um, my favorite line was uh, there could not be a more chickeny word than chicken. You almost have to move your head like a chicken to say chicken. That's just beautiful. Uh, but the, the so thing true. that the thing that I saw, the thread I saw was, you know, he starts by talking about poets are people that love language and they don't love language to just prove how many clever words they know, but they love language. And um, he talks about this idea of incarnation, incarnational diction. Um, I think it's because ultimately he cares about the truth, right? And we should write true things that reflect the truth and connect with the real thing. And I think he's in love with language because he's in love with, 
you know, the creator of language. He's in love with God. And so I just love Dr. Myers. And uh, Nate, I don't know if you had something to share specifically, but would you would you also? Yeah, I uh, jumping off something you said there, Cody, uh, one thought that I had as I, as I listened to Dr. Myers, um, in, in the beginning there, as, as you talked about, you know, the people who love language, the people who profess to love language because they want to show off vocabulary versus the people who love the real words they use every day. Um, he said this really, really profound line. The second person is closer to a state of poetry. And mm-hmm. it's just so, it's just so kind of, countercultural in the world of literature that like sometimes it's just like the simplest words the ones that we use every day like those are the ones that result in in true poetry and it reminded me of uh, a quote that I've mentioned even here on the podcast before but a, a Lewis quote and he says even in literature and art no man who bothers about originality will ever be original whereas if you simply try to tell the truth you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. And it just reminded me of that because it's like you're trying to be poetic and you're trying to like do poetry right. And so you think of all the the flowery, just majestic language and that's so abstract and that, that you can possibly use the big words. And then it's like, oh, shoot, I, I wrote this thing. And it's like, it's a bad poem. But then... The, the, the people who are just like write about the world, you just like write about your experience and like the things around you, just the things. And all of a sudden you've like written better poetry. Um, yeah. You with, be up and doing, <laughs> be in motion, you know, that's right. right. Um, just d- d- engaging with the physical world. So I, I just, I love that. And it's, it's almost like this, uh, this week becomes strong sort of thing that uh, you don't have to try mm-hmm. super hard, to, to use crazy words. It's like, what's right in front of you. Rich wants to throw in a Yoda quote right now. Does he not? No. I was trying to do that hand clicking thing that Nate is so famous for. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, it's so true. The, um, I, I think that, so the, the poem that ecstasis just picked up of mine is, uh, it's so funny that we're talking about this because, that it's exactly that. It's um, just about me laying on the floor in an empty room where all of my belongings have been moved out of the room, uh, except for a little my my phone laying on the ground playing a Bill Evans jazz song, and the poem is just about me laying on the ground uh, in the middle of the night, uh, watching how the colors change in the room with nothing, you know, nothing to catch your eye except the light and the walls and then the sound being amplified by the empty room of just bill evans playing the piano and that's uh, good that's that's all it's about so beautiful stuff but what does it mean richard what does it mean it means you should lay on the ground sometimes and not worry about anything and listen to great jazz. Sell all your possessions. Yeah follow all your possessions and follow me to the jazz music. Oh beautiful can I can I throw in one more thing to yeah. Nate? Yeah, jump in. Um, I another thing that, that again speaking of not fancy terms here, another thing that I've always found really compelling in art is this idea of like internal consistency. So I mean, yeah, maybe someday I'll come up with a better uh, name for that that idea. But I mean, 
to me, the, the idea is that like when the form of, of art also conveys the idea of the art, I've always found that to be really, really compelling. I think mm-hmm. um, there's a really great short story uh, that I know it was one of my favorite short stories by a guy named Ted Chang. It's, it's called the story of your life. It's actually the one that, um, uh, arrival, arrival, the movie arrival is based off of, but it's really cool because it has to do with time. Like the, that's kind of the central idea of the story. Um, and anybody who's watched the movie arrival would, will kind of know what I'm getting at here, Great but movie. the way the story is told is, is in line with the, the central idea of the story. And that's, that's all I always say. I don't want to ruin it. But I mean, what he was saying about getting closer to the world, if you're talking about uh, the example he's using about the woodpecker, I mean, when you're, when you're writing about a woodpecker and you can hear the woodpecker doing its work, you know, um, I think, I find that really compelling. And I think that that's something that's something to aim after in your art. And yeah. it's kind of cool to have this, this way of thinking about it, like approximating that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I found that really helpful. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the form relates to the meaning. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So one final question, boys. Uh, as you consider this this workshop and these ideas, what's a way that you might uh, implement it in your your daily life? You know, so, some of you are poets, some of you are not, uh, but we all like to read. What, what, what are some ways you're, you're going to think about this stuff in your daily life? Well, I'll go quickly. I just, uh, I feel totally vindicated for shoehorning and alliteration into almost anything I write. Mm -hmm. And I'll just continue to do that. Um, I also plan to keep eating peanut butter and we'll enjoy it even more now. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Sean, Sean, Rich, any, uh, any, any ways that you would uh, think about this stuff in your life? Um, I mean, I got two, two thoughts, one I already kind of hit on, but when you're, when you're writing or you're, you know, creating visual art or, you know, whatever it is, um, remember how powerful everyday stuff is. I mean, I, um, I, not so much anymore, but I, there was a season when I was really, really steeped in reading plays and seeing them as much as I could. And the plays that are the most powerful to me by far are the plays that take place like in someone's kitchen, you know? And it's just like a conversation between family members about something very real in a very real setting. And anyone who's listened to this podcast in the past knows that I love like epic fantasy stories as well and stuff like that. Um, And there's power of a different sort in in that. But um, if you're trying to tell a real story, a lot of times you can just tell the real story the way it happened you know, in the, with the surroundings that it occurred in and with the words that were used. And I think that's, that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then I think secondly, maybe a, a, a less artistic and more lifestyle uh, thought that I had after listening to um, Dr. Myers is just the fact that in the same way that common things are valuable in poetry, common things are valuable in real life too. Wendell Berry's book that I love so much that I've mentioned before called the art of the commonplace. Like we, humanity has strived for so long to, you know, be better than the neighbor and, you know, better than that other country. And we can develop this thing faster. We're going to create the best thing. And at the end of the day, um, 
it's the common stuff that really matters. You know, it's how we live our lives on a daily basis, how we treat our family members, how we treat our neighbors. Um, and I think that God gives the majority of humans a very common existence because there's beauty in that, mm. you know? That's good. Man, Rich, Rich here breaking down the sacred secular divide. <laughs> um, Burn it down. I'll just jump in with some with some quick thoughts here. I think for me, uh, if it's definitely gonna you know affect how I uh, approach writing, whether it's again whether it's like more creative stuff or essays, um, or even like writing poetry. Um, I actually kind of dabbled in that recently kind of as like a, an unofficial assignment for one of my, one of my classes. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. So I think I'm going to try and do that a little bit more. Nice. Um, but I think as I do that, I want to think more attentively about like the particular words that I'm using and how, that, how they fit into the ideas that I'm trying to convey. And then also I think on the, the flip side of that, for me, reading is so much about just enjoyment just the, the joys of, of watching other people use words well. And mm-hmm. so I've always loved like looking at the style that different poets or different writers have. I mean, Chesterton is a great example of that. He's just a hoot when you read him. And it's always fun to kind of like look at how he does what he does. Um, not just the, the things that he's like communicating, but um I think now that I've kind of got this framework um, in the back of my mind, it'll be interesting to, to kind of apply that to the, the just general reading that I'm doing and mm-hmm. think about the ways, the words that, that these authors or these poets use um, works on the ideas that, that I'm receiving as I'm reading them. So yeah, just, just a, a kind of the joy of reading, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of it for me too. Um, even though I don't write poetry myself, I have been reading a little bit more poetry because there's been more poetry uh, integrated into some of the books that I have been reading recently. So I guess just as I'm reading poetry, I think um, instead of purely reading from a, like a, a deciphering angle and trying to like decipher the meaning behind the poem, I think I want to just read it a bit more with an understanding that the poet was thinking about how the words sounded when they wrote the poem and in so doing I'll probably get more enjoyment out of the poem itself and as as I read it and also have like more appreciation for the work that they did in crafting it Um, if instead of just glossing over that whole part and just getting to the meaning I get to kind of get to the form of it as well um, and the sound of it so that's it's it's almost like an art appreciation angle Yep. Yeah, because it's less about, you know, what does this poem mean versus uh, what is it, what is the poem doing, yeah. which is the most English teacher thing I, I'll say all day, but, right, it's like... Yeah, the poem is active and embodied. <laughs> sharper than any two-edged sword. All right. Well, some <laughs> no, poetry I, is. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get blasphemous here. Another just quick thought for those of you that might be listening this far into the episode who aren't poets, if any of you would brave this far. I think uh, we it's interesting that we are, as a culture, we're pretty good at accepting this when it comes to visual art. And I think we struggle way more when it comes to music and writing. Like I think we've accepted as a culture that 
visual art doesn't necessarily need to mean something as much as it has, you have to allow it to work on you and, you know, like play with your emotions or, or just your eyes for that matter. Um, but I think when we, with like reading, maybe because, I mean, visual artists could get really mad at me for saying this, but maybe because reading is a bit more labor intensive than engaging with visual art, we don't want to put that work into it. I don't know. But we, we a lot of times we don't want to read something unless we know it either has a really good story or a really clear message. Yeah, like it's just delivering information when in fact it's actually an art form in and of itself that we could appreciate. And the funny part is even when you are trying to just deliver information, I think the best essays I've ever, or even news articles that I've ever written uh, have a level of poesy to them because of the way that the words that are chosen and the way that things are structured. So, yeah, Yeah, that's key. All right. Well guys, thanks for uh, joining me for this conversation. Thanks to Dr. Myers for, for doing that breakout at our virtual event. Um, and thanks to our listeners for uh, going on this little journey with us through incarnational diction. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't yet, head over to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and a review. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Definitely hit the subscribe button. And uh, if, if you really enjoy the podcast, tell a friend. Get, get, get a friend to come listen. Uh, this is a community thing. So we, we want more people to, to be enjoying this. So hit that share button, tell a friend, uh, and we'll look forward to, uh, to growing this community together. So until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art. What a showman. What a crisp, crispy showman. Crispy, buttery, crispy crust. (laughs) 